We are going to look into God's Word this morning, and I am um, burdened and uh, encouraged to share this passage of Scripture with you this morning. Um, this sermon this morning is really born out of uh, my own personal meditation on the Word of God um, here uh, over the last week or so. And so we're going to look in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 5 and 6, and they are verses that are probably very familiar to you, but I want you to pay very careful attention. I'm going to read them slowly. I'm going to ask God to really give us the ability to understand the truths that are in these passages, in these verses this morning. So Hebrews chapter 13, I'm coming to the end of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 13, if you read through the whole chapter, it kind of reads like a chapter in the second part of the book of Proverbs. There's just a lot of practical applications and points that are being made after the first 12 chapters of gospel truth being unpacked in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 13 reads almost like just do this and do this and remember this and think about this. And it, it's, it seems like a disjointed list of things, but really it's, it's biblical wisdom as it would have been presented in a Hebrew sort of way. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 5 and 6 are two of those truths that the author of Hebrews wants the recipients of this letter to remember and to apply. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never, ever leave you. I will never, ever, ever forsake you. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, you notice that I added some evers. Those are there in the Greek, and I'm actually being serious. In the Greek, it's a double negative on the first phrase and a triple negative on the second phrase. In English, if I said, I will not never forsake you, that would mean that I am going to forsake you. In Greek, it doesn't work that way. They can stack up the negatives to really make a point. And here it's, it, it, we're being told that God says, I will never, ever leave you. No, I will never, ever, ever forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Father, this is an incredibly simple passage and yet, it is incredibly profound. It, it is a life-changing truth. And so help us. Help me as I seek to communicate the truth of this passage. Help my brothers and sisters as they received the truth of this passage. Spirit of God, come and do what we all desperately need you to do this morning. In Christ's name, amen. The title of my sermon this morning is this, Confident, excuse me, Content and Confident in Christ. Content and Confident in Christ. So let me ask you this. When you see someone else get something new, 
or have an experience in life that you wish you could have, what happens in your heart? When you see someone else's new truck, Will Perkins got a new truck. New is maybe not the right word. It's new to him. When you see someone else's newly remodeled kitchen, when you see someone with a new baby and you can't have a baby, when you see someone being promoted in their job and you want to be promoted in your job or you think you should be the one promoted, when you see someone's farm increase, they get four new sections. When you see someone's new combine, I'm trying to be culturally relevant here. I don't envy anyone's new combine. Their new vacation cabin, their new boat, their new house, their new gun. That's a little closer to home for me. Or their raise, or whatever that thing is might be, and you see them get the thing that you wanted. Or maybe it isn't even that you watch someone else, but you just walk through the mall and see stuff. You get on Amazon and see stuff. Right? You get on your whatever your, the internet page for your hobby and interest is, mountain biking, what, like whatever, and you see the thing. What happens in your heart? Let me ask you this question, and I want you to think about a real answer for you. Are you discontent with life? Are you discontent with what you have? Are you discontent with your spouse, your family, your community, your belongings, your possessions, your bank account? I think many of us, many of, notice I'm using the word us, not using the word you this morning. Many of us struggle with discontentment. We want more than we have. And, and at times, we want it a lot. Most everyone, if not all of us in here, are discontented in one way or another this morning. Let me ask you another question. Are you afraid? Are you afraid this morning? Are you afraid of what might be in your future? Are you afraid that your future won't change? Are you afraid of what so-and-so might say about you or what someone might do to you? Are you afraid for your own health? Are you afraid for your circumstances? I, as a pastor, have the incredible privilege to sit down and talk with people and hear kind of the, the, the rawest version of what's going on in their life, the, the deepest hurt, the thing that's most real for them. It's a privilege. It really is. It's one of my favorite things about being a pastor. I love, I love moving toward people and hearing what God's doing in their lives. But often that includes me sitting down with them over lunch, over coffee, in my office visiting and hearing their fears for their life and their future. 
their concerns for their family, their concerns for their own health, your concerns. And, and many of us, many of us have things in our lives that we're afraid of, that we're fearful about. Health, finances, future, whatever the thing is, there are things that we're afraid of. I think most of us are walking through life with, you know, you have a low-grade fever. It doesn't keep you from work, but you just, we walk through life with a low-grade discontentment and or fear. And I think it's a very, very common experience. Brothers and sisters, what, what God is communicating for us, the author of the book of Hebrews is communicating for us, is a key. It's a solution. There's a remedy for your discontentment. There's, there's a fix for your fear. You ever have some problem and someone says, oh, what you need to do is this home remedy. You have the hiccups, right, blowing a paper bag, Drink a glass of water upside down. Hold your breath for 20 minutes. I don't know. Like there's different, there's different you know, home remedies for certain things. And sometimes you try them and you think it worked. I didn't think that would work. Rub an onion on it, whatever. Rub dirt in it, right, Dustin? You get a big, you know, rub dirt in it. Yeah, that's, what, that's EMT technical ways of fixing wounds. Brothers and sisters, God is actually giving us a remedy for two of the biggest problems that we face as we live our lives, discontentment and fear. We can be content, which is the opposite of discontentment, and we can be confident, which is the opposite of fear. We can be content and confident in Christ. The main point this morning is this. God's promise of faithfulness is our ground for contentment and confidence. God's promise of faithfulness to you is the grounds for your contentment and confidence. I'm going to do my best now to unpack that from these verses right here. First of all, we're told in verse 5 about our contentment. Point number one is our contentment. It says, keep your life free from the love of money. I think it's interesting. That big, long phrase, keep your life free from the love of money, is really just two words in the original language with a, with a definite article. And it literally says, the way of life, not loving money. Here's how, here's how your way of life is supposed to be. The way of life, not loving money. But we love money. We love money. One author says, covetousness, right? It's also said, we're told, be content with what you have. But, but we get covetous. Covetousness the, 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 one of the Ten Commandments, the Tenth of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. Covetousness is an attitude. It's wanting to acquire things, longing for them, setting our thoughts and attention on them, whether we possess them or not. You can own the things and be covetous or not own the things and be covetous. We love gold, cash, Numbers on a screen that represent earnings in our bank account, assets around the farm. We, we love wealth. We love money. And throughout the scriptures, we're warned not to love money. The love of money is what? You remember? Yeah, it's the root of all kinds of evils. 
Now, again, we have to be careful here, right? Is money evil? No, money's not evil. Money's very useful, right? We do need money. We, we need the ability to buy and sell and take care of ourselves. Money isn't bad, but loving it, loving it is a sin. And it's hardwired in us, not just to use money, not just to have money, but to love money. We're told to keep our lives free from the love of money. And what, what God is commanding here is this. He's, he's commanding that you feel a certain way. I think these commands are usually the hardest ones for us to obey, right? If, if God would have said, don't make sure that your bank account doesn't get above a certain dollar amount, that would be relatively easy, right? You'd be like, okay, we Christians can only earn 80% of the average income in our area, right? And God could have done that, right? He could have spelled out some kind of formula that would keep us Christians in a certain price range, right? A, a, a range of living. But he doesn't do that. He commands you to feel a certain way. Well, how do I keep my heart from loving money? But he doesn't stop there. He says, and be content with what you have. So I'm not just told not to love money, but I'm also told to be resting and settled with what I've got. The, the beautiful Old Testament word, that Hebrew word shalom, to have peace, to be at rest. This is the idea here. We're, we're commanded to be at rest with the things that we have. And notice here, it doesn't say if you have a lot, you can be content. Or if you're middle class, you can be content. But if you're poor, you have the right not to be content. It simply says be content with what, with what you have. No amount is mentioned here. If you have a lot, you have to be content. If you have a little, you have to be content. If you have four sections of land, you have to be content. If you have three bedrooms and one bath, you have to be content. Contentment, brothers and sisters, has nothing to do with how much you have. They're in no way related. We think they are. We think if I only had this, I would be content. Uh, I think it was John D. Rockefeller, the famous old, was he oil or railroad? Oil, oil man in the early American, um, uh, was asked after he earned his first million, how much will be enough? And he said, another million. That's, that's when I'll be content. When will you be content? After, after another million. Brothers and sisters, the amount has absolutely no correlation or causation to whether or not we are content. If you aren't content right now, there's nothing that you can get that will make you content. You think, I'm not content, but if I only had life like this, if I only had maybe a little more, if I had a little more security, if I had a little more income, if I had a little, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is that you know you want, getting that, will not make you content. And some of you have been around long enough and you've experienced this enough to know that this is true. And you experience it in little ways, right? The Amazon package finally comes. You've waited a day and a half and it finally, it's here. And you open that sucker up and you take it out and whatever the thing is, you're like, I mean, I'm glad I have it, 
but now I want the other thing that you need to make this thing even cooler. This is my experience on a regular basis. I'm not sure if I love Amazon or hate Amazon for this very reason. Because remember, contentment isn't a result of money or possessions. Now, I tried to think of an illustration that would help us understand how getting things won't satisfy our contentment level. Let's say that the feeling of discontentment is like thirst. They're both desires. We could say they're, they're both feelings. We, we feel the need for more stuff or we feel the need for, for water. If I'm thirsty, there's only one thing that will satisfy my thirst. If I'm discontent, there's only one thing that will satisfy my contentment. There's only one thing that will satisfy my soul. Now imagine, if I'm thirsty and you give me money, will it quench my thirst? No. Not a trick question. If I'm thirsty and you give me more toys, will it quench my thirst? No. If I'm thirsty and you give me more friends, will it quench my thirst? Or if you give me better health, if you give me a better job, if you give me a better truck, if you, it won't quench my thirst. It can't. The thing that I need to quench my thirst is water. Discontentment in our hearts, in our souls, can only be satisfied. It can only be quenched with one thing. And no amount of better job, more farm, more vehicles, bigger gun collection, whatever the thing is for you, shoes, whatever the thing is for you that you think, if I could just have more, I'm just teasing, then, then I'll be content. Listen, that thing cannot it cannot bring you contentment. It's not a thing that brings contentment. You don't quench your thirst with a new shotgun. It can't, it, it can't do that for you. Water quenches thirst. You can't satisfy discontentment with a thing. We're going to talk about what does take care of it in a second. So this passage tells us what will satisfy the feeling of discontentment in our souls. Do you remember the passage where Paul says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. Are you familiar with that passage? How can Paul say that? How can Paul say, when I'm in prison, I'm content. When I'm a free man, I'm content. When I'm doing well financially, I'm content. When I'm doing poorly financially, I'm content. I'm content whether I am abased or whether I abound. In all things, I am content. How can he say that? I want to know that experience. Secondly, let's look at God's commitment. So first was our contentment. Number two, God's commitment. And now we're going to start working toward an answer for how you can change the way you feel. Because changing the way we feel is a hard thing to do. You can't just, right? I mean, you can't just make yourself feel differently. We have to think differently in order to feel differently. God's commitment. Look here, the second half of verse 5. 
um, if it would be appropriate if our Bibles, if they had flashing lights and the pop-up, you know, the pop-up storybooks, if it could pop up and have flashing lights and grab you by the collar and pull you close, it, this would be a perfect place for our Bibles to do that. Because the end of verse 5 says this, He has said, this is talking about God, and it's getting ready to quote a passage from Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. If you want to write in the reference there, next to the words, I will never leave you or forsake you, those words are used in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. God is saying, I will never leave you or forsake you. Why is this, why are these words the answer, the solution, the key to fixing how you feel about stuff? It seems like a weird answer. It seems like God would just say, um, uh, if you're discontent, uh, don't worry, I've got stuff. He doesn't, he doesn't say, if you're discontent, I've got the stuff that I'll give to you to make you content. He doesn't even point to that. He says, I want you to look at me. For, for the discontentment that you wrestle with, I will never leave you or forsake you. Here's, here's why those words are the answer for our problem of discontentment. When we look to things like money or possessions to satisfy our discontentment, what is it that we're really looking to them to do? Think about that for a second. If you want a new house, if you want a new pickup, if you want a new truck, if you want a new wardrobe, it, whatever, you want a new spouse, it's not, it's not that I need metal with rubber tires in order for me to be happy. It's not that um, I need more money. I need, I need more pieces of green paper with numbers written on them, right, cash. And that's the thing that I'm lacking. And if I can just get more green papers, then I'll be content again. The money, the possessions, those things bring the things that we're actually in pursuit of. What we are in pursuit of is pleasure, security, status. There may be a few other things thrown in there, but I think a lot of what we're actually in pursuit of falls neatly under one of those three categories. What we, what we really want is pleasure, right? A new, a new gun, a new credit card to pay for the vacation, a new gun to go on the trips, a new truck to whatever, like the, the pleasure or the status. I, I want people to see that I get a new pickup every year or whatever. Um, or security. I want to be safe. I want to be well taken care of. I, I don't want anybody, I don't want to have to depend on anyone when I retire. I want to make sure that I can afford the best kind of health care, whatever. Pleasure, security, and status are the things that we're actually after underneath whatever the item might be, the money or the possessions. Can any of those things, can money or possessions actually deliver pleasure, status, and security in a permanent way? No. 
it might bring some fleeting, temporary, um, uh, what's the word, uh, image. You, it, might, it might trick you into thinking for a brief period of time, wow, I have all this money, so now I can go and have pleasure. Now, I, now I'll have security. But there's no money and there's no possessions that are without being threatened. We want money because we think it will bring us pleasure and status and security. What does every credit card commercial use to convince you to buy their credit card, to use their credit card? Pleasure, right? The family running on the beach, right? You see it in your mind right now. I know you do. Or status, the businessman pulling his wallet out of his suit to uh, use that credit card to pay for the fancy dinner at the five-star restaurant. Or security, right? The, The old couple who are still healthy and young, they have a perfect tan and white hair, and they're playing tennis in their 70s, right? And, and they use this credit card to pay for their club membership. Whatever, like security, status, pleasure, those, Satan knows how to get at us. He knows what we really want. And it's not the piece of plastic that's the credit card. It's, it's promising to give you what your heart is desperate to find because your heart is desperate to find pleasure, and status and security. Now, let me throw a little monkey wrench in here. Pleasure, status, and security are not sinful things. They're not even wrong things to desire. It is sinful to fulfill those desires the wrong way. And that's what we spend a lot of our lives doing, myself included. So these things, money and possessions, promise to bring us pleasure and status and security, but they don't because they can't. Money can't bring you security. In fact, the more money you have, the more you have to worry about keeping it secure instead of it keeping you secure. It, it can't keep you from getting a disease. It can't make your kids love you. It, it can't bring you what you desperately want it to bring you. But God says to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. What does that promise from God secure for you? When the almighty God of the universe looks you in the eyes and says to you, I'm making you a promise that you can rest your life on for eternity. I'm telling you, I will never, ever leave you. No, I will never, ever, ever forsake you. I have all I have um, all of the resources necessary to take care of you for eternity. When God looks at you and says that to you, do you know what that promise brings? Pleasure, status, and security. The promise that God makes is the answer for our longing souls. None of this other stuff can do that. There is no one and no thing that can tell you, I will never leave you or forsake you. There is no human being that can make that promise to you, and you and they both know with certainty that they will keep it. There is no one. Not a spouse, not a parent, not a child. We know good people, and we know powerful people, and we know wealthy people, and we know wise people, and that's part of the problem for us understanding this passage. We know people. 
And when we hear that God has promised to never leave us or forsake us, we think of that like it's the best people that we know who have made that statement. But the best people that we know can make that statement, and we know, and they know, they have no way of being sure. Your spouse can say, I will never leave you or forsake you and get hit by a car later the same day. The wealthiest person you know can say, I will always provide for you, and they could go uh, broke in, the, in a stock market crash. The wisest person you know can say, I will always be here to help you, but they could get sick or move away or die or get a brain injury. God is not like the best people you know. There is nothing that threatens him. He will never leave us or forsake. He can't get sick. He can't lose wisdom. He can't lose possessions and wealth. He can't get hit by a car. And he's not going to be unfaithful to you. He has never, ever, ever broken a promise or failed his people, ever. He will never, ever leave you. No, he will never, ever, ever forsake you. I want us, brothers and sisters, to feel the certainty of that promise. I want you to see in your mind's eye Jesus Christ looking at you from the cross and saying, look, I'm telling you, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Look what I've done to secure this promise for you. Look to me for the desires of your heart, the pleasure, the status, the security. Jesus says, at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. You want pleasures forevermore? Look to Christ. Jesus says to those who know him as Savior that you are accepted in the beloved. You want to talk about status? We care way too much about what other people think of us. What does God think of us? We're his beloved. He loves us. We're accepted in the beloved. Pleasure, status, security. I go to prepare a place for you. When I come again, I will receive you unto myself, and we'll go there to be together forever to be with the Lord. Security? You're going to die. I'm going to die. Let's, let's look to Christ as the only one that can provide the security that we absolutely, desperately need. God's not like man. We need someone to look us in the eyes and say, I won't ever fail you. I won't ever disappoint you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I have all the resources necessary to take care of you forever. And so Jesus is saying, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with the things that you have because here's, here's, why you can, here's how you can do that. Listen to my promise because he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if that promise isn't um, incredibly satisfying and securing to us, it's just because we don't know God very well yet. If a human being makes that promise to you, you, you are encouraged based on how well you know that promise, or that person, rather. Right? So imagine some guy drives in off the street, and he comes in, and he tells Dustin, hey, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. Dustin would be like, this is weird. I've never, never met you before. This is weird, right? If Will goes to Dustin and says, Dustin, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you, Dustin's going to go, that's, a, that's encouraging, man. I, you know, we've known each other for a few years now, and I love you and trust you. That's a meaningful promise. With, when, when, when Courtney says to Dustin, I'll never leave you or forsake you, or Dustin's dad says to Dustin, I'll never leave you or forsake you, like the more we know someone and the more about that person we know, the, 
the, the gooder that person is. The, the more we, we receive that promise and go, this, is, this secures me. This is encouraging to me. Infinitely greater than that. The God of the universe who created you, and then you rebelled against him, and then he sent his son to die for you. So he's already proven he's taking care of our biggest problems by sending Jesus. And now he says, look, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with the things that you have, because I'm telling you, I'm promising you, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. When you read through Christian history, there are some really low moments of God's choice servants being imprisoned, having their families taken away, having their possessions taken away, having, um, you know, being falsely accused, put in prison, tortured, burned at the stake, that sort of thing. And often the story accompanying those Christians are, as they're literally being burned at the stake, they are content in that moment. In, into your hands, Lord, I commend my spirit, like Christ said. This is the key. This is the answer. But this passage doesn't stop even with that promise. Verse 6 continues the idea by saying, So, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. Say that with me. The Lord is my helper. One more time. The Lord is my helper. Now, I'm going to talk about this in just a minute, but that is a phrase that you need to get used to saying out loud. And I'm going to talk about why you need to say that out loud here in just a minute. That's not a weird thing. Okay, uh, yeah, I'll wait. It's, it's in my notes, and I'll wait till I get to it. Thirdly, Verse 6 shows our confidence. So we started with our contentment, then we saw God's commitment, and now we're looking at our confidence. And our contentment and our confidence both flow out of that point number two, God's commitment to us. That's what, that's what gives us contentment. And, that, and now we're going to see here in verse 6, that's what also gives us our confidence. What can man do to me? Verse 6. Now, before you give me your religious answer, your spiritual answer, your Sunday school answer, let's stop and think about what man can do to you. Man can do a lot of things to you. A lot of bad things. Right? He can. He can kill you. Or maybe worse, betray you, forsake you, leave you, gossip about you lie about you, ignore you, disappoint you. You might be thinking right now of one or two or three of stories in your own life where that's happened. Everybody's got a story like it. Everybody does. Everybody has a story of the person who hurt them or the people who hurt them or the church who hurt them or the pastor who hurt them or the spouse who hurt them or the, right? Everybody has that story. What can man do to me? Well, that question for many of us in this room has re a real answer. You want to know what man can do? I'll tell you what man can do to me. It hurts. So, so this, this, um, this phrase is being quoted from Psalm 118, verse 6, is where this quotation is coming from. Your marginal note might even mention that, and if you want to jot that down in your Bible, that way you'd know... The, uh, in verse 5, the quotation comes from Joshua chapter 1. In verse 6, the quotation comes from uh, Psalm 118. 
What can man do? A lot of things. But I, I want to live in confidence, but I often live in the fear of man. Some people struggle with this more than other people do, but everybody struggles with the fear of man in certain ways, whether it's what people think about you or what people might do to you or bad decisions that people might make about you. We tend to struggle with the fear of man. What antidote has God provided that heals the fear of man? Well, verse 6, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. Verse 5 and 6 have so many similarities that I actually really struggled to know how to put the outline together this morning, exactly how to package the, the sermon. I, I decided just to do what I'm doing and walk straight through the passage like this. The Lord is my helper. And again, think of the illustration I just mentioned a minute ago. If a stranger comes in and tells Dustin, I'm your helper, that doesn't mean much. If Will says, I'll be your helper, that means a lot more. If Dustin's dad says, I'll be your helper, that means even more. The more you know who the helper is, the more confident you are in the help. God has said to you, I'm going to be your helper. I'm going to help you with your biggest problem. You've sinned against me and are headed toward hell. And I'm going to reach and pluck you up out of the miry pit and set you on a rock. And I'm going to clean you off. And I'm going to make you a trophy of my grace. I'm, I'm your helper in your worst problem, and I'm your helper in all your other little fear of man problems, which seem huge to us. I want to live in this confidence. The Lord is my helper, but we forget this, don't we? We forget that the Lord is our helper. One pastor said, the seed of, uns- uh, excuse me, the seed of unnecessary fear in the heart of a Christian is forgetfulness. An inability to remember and trust what the God of the universe has said and done. Do you know why you fear? Because you forget. The reason you fear is because you forget. We get, like Peter, we get our eyes off of the Savior. We look at the problems around us and we start to sink. That's why I fear. I fear when I look around at my circumstances. And here's when I get the most afraid. When I look inward. When I look at me, when I think about me, my abilities, my inabilities, my sin, my that boy, you want to talk about getting afraid fast? And I forget, we forget that God has promised to be our helper. So look in verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So... We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can, what can man do to me. Do you see how the end of verse 5, the phrase, I will never leave you or forsake you, is the key to your contentment, and it's also the key to your confidence. It's like, it's like the answer is right there in the middle of these two verses. And our, our, um, our contentment in verse 5 flows out of that promise from God, and our Confidence in verse 6 flows out of that promise. Now, let me make a couple of observations and a couple of applications. We're almost done. Observation. Whether, we fear, whether it's fear of poverty, right? So our, our, our um, covetousness might be a fear of poverty. Whether it's a fear of poverty or the fear of persecution, 
verse 6, what can man do to me? He can persecute me. Whether the fear of poverty or the fear of persecution, God's promise of faithfulness is the answer. You're discontent. You're afraid of what may happen in your life. God's promise of faithfulness to you is always the answer. Here's another observation. Whether the problem is inside of me, my heart's feeling of covetousness, or outside of me, the persecution of man, God's promise of faithfulness is the answer. Whether the problem's on the inside or the problem's on the outside, the answer's the same. God has promised to be faithful to us. And I want us to note, I want, and let's talk, I mentioned earlier that we need to get used to saying, the Lord is my helper. Look at verse 5. Second, second part of the verse says this, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Look at the three words, he has said. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Because God said that, what do we get to say? Look at verse 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. Since God has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, I get to say, the Lord is my helper. Underline in your Bible, he has said, and then underline, we can say. Because he said, we can say. He's made a promise that lets us make a claim. He has assured us of something so that we can confidently say, and I love the fact that the word confidently is put in there. It's not just, he said this so we can say this. He has promised he will never leave you or forsake you, and so now we can confidently say. Now, some of you are naturally more confident, and others of us are naturally not particularly confident people. I is no secret, if you know me. You know, I'm not a particularly confident person. But you know what I can with absolute confidence say? The Lord is my helper. Because his, his promise is in no way dependent upon my performance. I stink at living the Christian life. He has assured me, I will never leave you or forsake you. I've proven this to you by sending to you my son and promising that I'm going to come back and bring you with me where I am. You will go also. So brothers and sisters, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. So when you start thinking, man, I would be happy if I only had such and such. You know what you need to do? You need to stop and remember, God has said he'll never leave me or forsake me. The pleasure, the security, the status that I want from that thing cannot be found in that thing. Pleasure, status, security are only found in him. He has promised to never leave me or forsake me. The Lord is my helper. And you can literally say it out loud where other people can hear it, where you can hear it. You can say, the Lord is my helper. We must say, the Lord is my helper. I am advocating. Brother, you know what this is? This is preaching the gospel to yourself. We talk about grabbing yourself by the collar. You ever get yourself in a funk and you almost like being pouty in the moment more than you actually want to get out of it? You, you kind of, you, you want to have a good solid half a day or day of just being pouty and sulking around 
and you want your, 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 uh, your spouse or your people to kind of know, just leave me alone. No, no, no. No, here's what you need to do. You need to go look in a mirror and grab yourself by the shirt collar. It's kind of weird. And, and look yourself in the eyes and say, the Lord is my helper. The, the Lord is my helper. I can be content and I can be confident because the Lord is my helper. Catalog truths about God. If the phrase, the Lord is my helper, isn't meaningful to you, then you need to get to know your helper better. He's the creator God. He's wise and he's good and he has everything we need. Catalog the truths of God and literally rehearse them out loud through Bible verses that you have on, the, on hand and, and ready to fight against the unbelief of your own heart. Rehearse the gospel regularly. Use, remember our four stabilizing truths? Remember, we went through that oh, early COVID, uh, 10 years ago, whatever that was. Four stabilizing truths. God's love for me is unchanging. God's purpose for me is Christ-likeness. God's word for me is the right answer. God's grace for me is sufficient. You know what all four of those things are saying? The Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. Life is hard. We get discontent. We get full of fear. God has given us a key. God has given us a solution. He's given us something that we can literally say out loud. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. The Lord is my helper. So, brothers and sisters, I, these, these verses confront us, but boy, do they give us hope and confidence and comfort. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He proved that to us on the cross. And in a moment, we're going to celebrate his work on the cross for us. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to ask Paula to come to the piano. We're almost done here. Probably everyone in here needs a moment to ask God to forgive us of our sin of covetousness and to ask God to forgive us of our sin of fear and to help us to help us claim the promise that he has made and to help us proclaim the, the solution that he has given us to proclaim, that the Lord is my helper. I'm going to ask Paula to play through uh, just the first verse. And you just pray. Take a moment if you want to continue to meditate on the passage of Scripture that you have there in front of you. If you need to ask God's forgiveness, if you need to ask God for his help, he, he has promised to give it to you. Paula continues to play, if you this morning are a follower of Jesus Christ and there's no known sin in your life that you're holding on to, we want to invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. And so as Paula continues to play, the communion cups are there in the back. If you haven't already picked up one, I invite you now to go 
and grab one of those, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together here in a moment. Sometimes someone offers to help you, and you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if they really mean that, right? And it becomes obvious to us that they intended to help us when they show up and actually help us. This, this promise from the Lord to be there, to never leave us or forsake us, and the confidence for us to say the Lord is my helper, this isn't empty, vain promises that God has made. What we're doing with the juice here and the wafer here 